0: should be on the screen behind you yes how beautiful you are my love how very beautiful your eyes are doves behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of gilead your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing all of which bear twins and not one among them is bereaved your lips are like a crimson thread and your mouth is lovely Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Well, my favorite line in that poem is the one about the teeth because her teeth are like a flock of freshly shorn sheep that have just been washed, but that's not enough information about the kind of sheep that they're like. He wants her to know exactly what kind of sheep they are, that they're like female sheep that only bear twins and never lose a single lamb. That's very specific kind of sheep. It's also my favorite line, though, because the very first time... Uh, my husband and I were on a, a, like, hangout, not sure if this is a date kind of date. Um, we were out at a, a establishment in Ballard. And at the end of our conversation, we're, like, getting up from the table. And Matt goes, "You has anyone ever told you you have really nice teeth? <laughs> and then he did this very awkward thing where he was, like, oh, psh, psh. I'm like Spider-Man, just shooting out compliments now, (laughs) and then it was the most awkward thing. Um, If you know Matt, you can, uh, my husband, who's not here today, and so he's going to be the butt of many jokes, he was clearly feeling awkward about complimenting me, and so he wanted to somehow soften it with this, I don't know, Spider-Man move. (laughs) But guess what? I still remember, maybe it was the Spider-Man move, but I still remember those words, I still remember, they were awkwardly given, they were not, I'm sorry, Matt, they were not the most poetic of compliments, but there was something in them that still meant something to me. And I think it was deeper than a mere compliment. We're going to look at that this morning and what this lover in the poem is doing with this woman. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to back up a little bit and give us a little bit of context of uh, this book, Song of Solomon, and how we're interpreting it. Many of you have heard this already in the last three weeks, but in case you haven't, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. And I'm going to give just a little bit of a synopsis of what happened in chapter 3 that sort of sets up what's happening in this chapter. So Song of Solomon is primarily about a man and a woman who are lovers. And as we learn throughout the book, they are married, we believe. And this is how the, um, all the pastors of Bethany are interpreting this passage for this sermon series. There are many interpretations out there, or this book. But in our interpretation, Solomon is not the man in this relationship. Solomon is actually the king who has taken the woman, along with hundreds of other women, from her life, from her marriage, and taken her to be his wife in his harem. And so this poem is telling the story of this man and woman as they faced separation, and then now as they reunited. And it touches on all that goes along with a woman being taken by force from her husband to belong to another man. And if that doesn't sound familiar, it's somewhat similar to the Bathsheba story, who is Solomon's mother, that she was taken from her marriage to be married to Solomon's dad. Just a side note, but... That's kind of the overarching what's going on in this passage. And then looking back specifically at chapter 3, which we studied last week, the poem is talking about the separation of the man and the woman at the beginning of chapter 3, where the woman is looking for the one whom my soul loves, right? The one whom my whole heart loves. We talked about wholeheartedness last week. But then in the second half of the chapter, she finds him, and she leads him into safety, into her mother's house, And kind of in an unusual switch, she starts to fall into a dream or a memory of what happened to her when Solomon took her. So she dreams about this carriage that she would have ridden, she rode in, and about the day that he carried her off, away from her family. She speaks about all the soldiers that surrounded him and the power that he had over her and over everyone around her. And so based on our interpretation of the book, It was the day that she was carried away from her life that she's remembering. And it's not pleasant. It's actually traumatic. And if we read this as a sort of a story, although we have to be careful because it is poetry. It's not super linear, and I'm a linear thinker, so that's hard for me. But if we read it as a sort of story, we can maybe imagine that they are still in this bedroom that she led her lover into once she found him. And that she has just recounted this memory or this dream to him. Maybe it was triggered by the fact that they were separated. But whatever it was, you can imagine she's maybe feeling scared and vulnerable. And not quite sure if the man is still, her lover is still with her in this. And so then we see chapter 4. In chapter 4, it's the man's turn to speak. He hasn't spoken a whole lot throughout these first three chapters. He's going to speak all the way through chapter 4 to the very last verse. And keep in mind, if we're, we're, again, kind of thinking about this a little bit literally, they might be in a bedroom as he's speaking to her. It helps me to imagine sort of a context for this love poem, for this story. And what we're going to do this morning is look at what this man, what this lover in this relationship uh, has to show us about fulfilling one of our deepest longings as human beings, which is to be holy and utterly loved in body, soul, and spirit. So not just for our bodies, not just for our personalities, not just for our spirituality, but all of it. We long for that complete kind of love. And we're going to look at this as it pertains to our relationship with God and our relationships with one another in every single one of these outline pieces. So there's three markers of this kind of three-dimensional love that we're longing for, for us to notice about the man in this passage, well, and the couple. First is the tenderness of the man's affection, the lover's affection. The second is the freedom that comes in his invitation to the woman. And the final thing we'll look at is the connection they have in physical intimacy. So that's coming at the end. (laughs) So first, we're going to revisit this first part of the passage I read, verses 1 through 7. The analogies he uses here, and he uses analogy in, over and over again, are unusual, right? And if, without a maybe really good understanding of Middle East geography, ancient Middle East geography, some of the analogies go right over our heads. But we're going to set those aside. We might come back to them But I want us to notice that what he's telling this woman, right, is just how beautiful. The very first verse is, you are so beautiful. He starts with the top of her head, her eyes, her hair, and he starts working his way down. You can imagine at this point, he might be standing across the room looking at her. He might be sitting on the bed next to her. At this point, she's still wearing a veil. She's fully clothed. And he's just looking at her. He's admiring her. He's telling her about what he sees when he looks at her. And keep in mind what she's been through, right? In the culture of their, of their day, this woman has been stolen by another man through no fault of her own, but that would have made her soiled goods, no longer worthy of love from a man like this. It helps us see that... He, he is offering his love all over again to her, slowly, tenderly. Verse 6, he says, all night I'm going to sit here and pursue you, essentially. And this is what our relationship with God is like. It's not just about human relationships, though it is about that too. We have a God who knows when we are hurting, when we, that we don't see ourselves as lovable, lovable very often, as worthy of love. Often, then God is tenderly telling us over and over again, "You are beautiful, my love." He speaks this over us as a church, as God's people. In First Peter two, uh, Peter writes, "But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation." He's writing to the church, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. God sees us in marvelous light. And not because we are perfect, even though, you know, we at Northeast, we're doing things great here. We are not perfect. I'm just kidding, by the way. We are, as every one of you has probably observed, imperfect. We do things badly sometimes. We mess up. So much more the whole church as, as, at large. And yet God is saying, you are absolutely beautiful. And it's because he loves us. It's his love that makes us beautiful in his eyes. Same with this lover, by the way. It's his love that makes this woman without flaw. It's not that she's flawless. Psalm 139 talks about this as well. And it's kind of an overused Scripture in the church, if you grew up in the church, Psalm 139 has a lot of passages that are sort of repeated flippantly. At least in my experience, I sometimes have overheard it. It's lost some of its power. But I want to read some of the verses of it for you and have you listen to these as if it's about you and God. Because this isn't just about us as a community. It's about us as individuals as well. David wrote, I believe it was David, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And then in verses 17 and 18, it says, How amazing are your thoughts concerning me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That's amazing, to think about God's thoughts about you as a person as bigger than the grains of sand, as more numerous, I should say. And it sounds like a love poem, right? Psalm 139. If you read it, it definitely sounds like a love poem. It should. And I think many of us know and believe that God loves us. In fact, we've, it's been ingrained, if you grew up in church, since you were a small, small child, because we teach them, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? Right? And we memorize John 3.16 as one of the core verses for our foundation, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is a message you've been hearing from very, very young, if you've grown up in the church, or hopefully even if you didn't. But how many of us actually believe this about ourselves, that God actually likes us, that God sees us like this lover sees this woman? That he's fond of us, that he has affection for us, and that he loves me specifically, not in an abstract kind of way, in a specific, he knows who I am kind of way. I had to ask myself this week, does God love, do I believe this about me, that God knows all these things about me, some of them I won't name, but some I will, (laughs) that I am an extroverted introvert. God knows this about me, that I love pizza and pasta and all things bread. Even though I know I probably need to not eat those things, I love them. I can't help it. God knows that I love to take 10 or 20 pictures every time I see a sunset and do nothing with them. That I cry in every movie when sad music comes on, no matter how silly the movie is. God knows these things about me. God knows, in a more serious note, That every time I try to go out for a run, I last about a minute, and then I walk. And then I think two days later, I'm going to go out for a run, and I I can't. I walk. That I'm a mysterious blend of a workaholic and a procrastinator. That I struggle with self-doubt and fear. That that's me. He knows me, and he loves me. Do I believe that? And not only when I actually make it five miles running, not only when I succeed at not working too much or not procrastinating too much, but in the midst of those things. Let's listen again to verse 7, which is my favorite verse, spoiler, in this passage. Imagine God is saying this to you this morning. I'm going to read it twice. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And Guys, I kind of was asking myself, the guys in the room, if this connects with you, because beauty isn't quite the same driver, maybe, for you as it is for some of us women. But I want us to think about beauty as so much more than physical, that you are complete in God's eyes, that you are perfect, that you are without flaw. May that hopefully resonate with every person in this room this morning. Paul's letter to the Ephesians kind of talks about this as well, about how this love of God works for us. And it comes as Paul is talking to us about how we live in relationships in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives. But that's not the part I'm talking about right now. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word to present her to himself. He's talking about God, Jesus, as a radiant church, without stain, without wrinkle, without any blemish, but holy and blameless. Our creator sees us as perfect, as without stain. And in fact, he pursued us to the point of being born, right, as a man and then dying as a human being so that he could see us this way, so that we would know he sees us this way. And this fundamentally affects our relationships with others. If we get this fact or even can start to understand this, it affects how we interact with each other so deeply. Because when we're no longer trying so hard to earn the affection of the people in our lives and experience the affection we are so desperately seeking, we can start to then offer it to other people. Uh, (laughs) an, An example of this, the first time uh, I dated someone. I was a junior in college. I was a little bit of a late bloomer in that area. And uh, I had no idea what I was doing. And the problem was, I kept um, I kept finding us in these competitive situations. So the guy I was dating was pretty competitive. I am also somewhat competitive. And any we do anything together, it would end up being a competition. And so it was foosball. It was... Uh, Grades in our classes, it was cards, and the problem actually was not just that I was competitive, but that I kept winning, right? I was, I kept winning at all of these things. Even we even took a snowboarding lesson together, and I was doing better than him. And I thought, gosh, he's gonna love me more because I'm so good at everything. (laughs) I'm earning all of this affection from him. I mean, I didn't necessarily think this consciously, but what was I trying to do? I was trying to say, hey, I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of your affection at a subconscious level. And shockingly, it turns out his ego wasn't quite ready for that penchant for winning that I had. And we didn't last. And I think a big reason was, more seriously, Both of us wanted to be so loved, so appreciated. We didn't really have a lot of love and affection to give each other, right? We were so focused on how this is affecting me. And we were, to give us some grace, we were juniors in college, that's fairly normal. And I'm lucky to be married to someone now who doesn't mind when I win most things, just kidding. We are still pretty competitive, but I think it's healthier. If we come into a relationship so hungry for love and affection, any relationship, that our only concern is to meet that need, and this isn't news to us, yet this is important stuff for us to remember. If we come into that relationship so hungry for affection, whether it's as parents, or as adult children of parents, or as spouses, of course, or as friends, we miss out on the opportunity to A, show up as our authentic selves, our real selves, and we miss out more so on the opportunity to actually experience the depth of love we're so longing for. It just eludes us. And God desires our first source of love would be from him. And then that we'd be able to hold that kind of love he offers us for other people so that they could experience that God-like love in tangible ways as we are in relationship with them. And the lover in the Song of Solomon is doing this for his beloved. He's holding God's love for her in this beautiful, unconditional, tender way because he sees her for who she is. He notices everything about her. He's noticing her hair and her teeth very clearly, and he has tender affection for her. He sees no flaws, only beauty. Can you imagine how that kind of love for each other would transform our relationships? you are all beautiful. I see no flaw in you. I see you as Christ sees you. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes actions of people are going to be problematic, that are going to need to be addressed. It doesn't mean ignoring or paint, whitewashing other people's flaws. It means saying, that's not you, though. What I see in you is all beauty. Yes, our actions we are we're still human, we can call, hold each other accountable and not invite the shame that comes from saying, that's, that's ugliness in you, right? This is, we can see each other as beautiful and still have accountability. Okay, I could actually talk about that point all day. Well, we're going to move on. Because after showering the woman with affection and with tenderness, the man starts to change course a little bit in this bedroom, say, and he starts inviting her to join him. Maybe to cross the room, if you want to think about this poem, sort of somewhat specifically. But to come respond to the love he's been offering. So notice, she still hasn't said or done anything that we can tell. Let's read verses 8 through 12 together. I'm sorry, I don't think I have these on the screen, but uh, I will read them aloud for us. And if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. So the man says, "'Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senyar and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with a glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride.'" How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips distill nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The scent of your garments is like the scent of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed. A lot more imagery there. We're not going to get deep into all of those analogies today. But to be frank, the man is inviting this woman to sexual intimacy, We can't really ignore that, and we're not going to. We're going to look at that as we get to our last point. But first, I want to talk about this power of the invitation he's giving her. Because all of us have observed what happens when this crucial piece of our intimate relationships is taken away. When someone tries to force another person to respond to them or to meet their need for affection. This is what causes domestic violence. This is what causes rape to occur. This is what causes things from even when we're very young children. These are when people try to buy someone else's affection or when as a bully is trying to win affection by force and respect by force, right? It's not just in our romantic relationships that we see this. And this is also the problem when we see kids uh, craving affection, craving attention. What do they often do? They act out. They try to manipulate maybe subconsciously, parents or adults in their lives, for that attention. They're trying to force something. It's also, in a different way, the problem we see with pornography. It's an illusion of the, an illusion, of the expression of love that we're craving, but without having to get any consent, without having to make any invitation to someone else. For women, this is true too. Generally speaking, there is this narrative of fantasy stories and love stories out there that more often women cling on to, which is an illusion of the love we crave without any actual real person there issuing an invitation or that we have invited in. It's a way for us to sort of experience this love in a split second. And then, of course, it's over and we're hollow again, sometimes more so. And the reason those industries are so big is because the real stuff, this love we're talking about in this poem that we see requires risk. And, of course, time and sacrifice. But inviting someone into a relationship is risky. It, at the same time, invites someone to have the power over you to wound you, right? And that's true when you're 20 years old and you're asking someone out for the first time on a date. But it's also true when you've been married 15 years and you're asking your spouse maybe to go to counseling with you for the first time. It's true when you're a child and you reach up to invite a parent to hold you. And it's true when you're 35 and you're calling your parents on the phone to ask them to come and help you with your own children. This risk is real when you're 12 and you're asking your friend to come over for a sleepover and it's true when you're 60 and you're asking your friend to come along to a doctor's appointment. Every time we invite someone into a relationship in a deeper way, it's risky. But the thing is, the minute that invitation turns into a command or becomes manipulative, then the very thing we're seeking in that invitation eludes us. It's gone. And so when the man tells the woman in Song of Solomon, you in verse 12, he says, you are a locked garden. You are a fountain sealed. He's acknowledging that she is capable of staying locked to him, right? She doesn't have to respond to this invitation. She, is, she has the freedom to wound him, to reject him. He's not commanding her to intimacy as Solomon did. He's inviting her. He's saying, come with me. And he's acknowledging that this open-ended invitation is painful. It's hard. He says, you've ravished my heart in verse 9. I'm entirely in your hands, he's saying. And why would we put ourselves through that, that kind of pain? It might be a question in our minds, at least subconsciously. And I would argue it's because we are wired this way. We are wired to desire a freedom, a choice in our receiving of love from someone else, that it's not out of obligation, that it's not forced or coerced, but that it is freely given. That's the kind of love we desire because we have a God who is the same in his character. Why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden is a question that many people have raised over the centuries, and I'm not going to pretend that I have the whole answer, but part of the answer, I believe, is that because without that tree, That Adam and Eve could choose not to eat from or to eat from, there would never have been a choosing. We couldn't choose to trust God's love for us. We would be forced to. There's no other option. And when God created us, he decided he didn't want a forced relationship with his people. He wanted the love that comes only from the freedom to choose, right? And we desire that same kind of love. It's a great deal of power God's given up in giving us the power to choose, But when we see that God does not only allow for this rejection in the Garden of Eden, he allows for it when he becomes human and is rejected and rejected and rejected by the people who are supposed to love God most. God is saying, I will always choose to be rejected over forcing you in to relationship with me. Our God's a God who invites us over and over and over again to relationship. And in the book of Revelations, the author John reveals God saying in a letter to one of the churches, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, open the door. I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There will be relationship, which is a beautiful picture of sharing a meal together with God. God's issuing, though, invitations every day. He's standing at the door and knocking for all of us every day to come and be with him. And if we really believe that, and then we might find that we also have the boldness to love with that kind of risk and to be the ones inviting, not those who command and not those who coerce or force or manipulate, but those who offer a free invitation, no strings attached to the people in our lives to love, to experience our love. And of course, this applies to marriages and romantic relationships. Because when was the last time you issued an invitation to your spouse if you were married? Or dating? Maybe it was to a retreat together. Maybe it's to accompany you on a walk or a candlelight dinner. Or maybe if you are married, to sexual intimacy in a different way, in a new way. Maybe this is something that's harder for us than we sometimes like to acknowledge. Inviting people to deeper relationship is risky. But it also applies to our other relationships. When was the last time you invited your children to spend time with you where it, wasn't a, it was not an option? They could say no, right? Maybe to do something new with you. When did you last invite a friend to a night away together or a, a new acquaintance out to dinner? True intimacy comes when both parties are issuing invitations and responding free of strings attached. And so we get to invite God into our lives. God doesn't just, isn't just the one inviting. He also allows us to invite him. And so he doesn't force his way in, but he gives us the gifts of prayer and worship in order to invite him in. So this is sort of what this invitation says in this chapter, especially given her history with Solomon. He's saying, I give you the freedom to choose me or not. But let's look at the final portion, knowing we're short on time and it's warm in here. <laughs> I know. Um, I want us to get to the, the part that actually is maybe the hardest to talk about for us, but also maybe the most important this morning. The final portion of the passage I am actually not going to read. The imagery gets fairly explicit, and so I'm not going to read it. You can read it. Uh, that's an invitation to go home and read it. But we'll see there's an emotional and physical element of love for this couple. After the tenderness of affection and the invitation have been offered, finally, in verse 16, the woman speaks. And she says, I won't read all of it, but she says, let my beloved come into my garden. Actually, she says, let my beloved come into his garden and eat its fruit. She's saying, I will open up to you. I will let you in. I will issue you my own invitation. And now... The imagery speaks for itself, but with the time we have left this morning, I want to talk frankly about how our bodies, physical bodies, are connected deeply to our relationships. And in the church and as a larger society over the past centuries, we've done a terrible job at honoring this truth and celebrating the bodies God's given us and the ways we've been wired. Because we're in fact emotional, spiritual, and physical beings, we were not created as ethereal angels who float around without bodies and we were not created as robots who have no physical needs or or experiences we actually have five senses but we often pretend that that's not the case in the church and i don't know if you notice but part of what makes some of us in this room maybe uncomfortable with this passage is not because it's overtly sexual it's because it's incredibly sensual right we're talking about uh, a man describing a woman's body, right? How she tastes, what she smells like. And we have a tendency to bulk at that. As if this kind of language is especially off limits in these walls. Or really maybe at all outside of closed bedroom doors or TV screens. But God gave us these five senses, and every one of those senses is involved in our human relationships. What's the first thing you taste when you are born into this world? Milk from a mother's breast, right? What's the first thing you feel? It's your mother's body. They say that infants can actually tell when their mom walks into a room, even if it's full of people, because they recognize her scent. They know her smell before they can talk. And I think they also can recognize her voice. And when you fall down and scrape your knee as a child, what do you immediately do? You want to be held right? By someone who's nearby, hopefully a parent or a guardian. And even as an adult, I've noticed this in me when a tragedy has struck our family. Something hard happens, sad happens. The first time I see my best friend or my husband or my parents, all I want to do is hug them, be with them, physically be with them. In every one of those situations, our senses are involved in our relationships. So how much more When we are in a romantic or marriage relationship, our feelings run deeper then. The risk is higher in that invitation. And so the physical needs and desires mirror that greater depth. And that's good. We're created for that. We're created to desire the deepest kind of closeness there is. It's actually sex is a gift from God that we could taste the kind of closeness God knows himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we call the Godhead or the Trinity, When sex happens in the context of that mutual freedom to choose each other, where affection is deep and growing, and a covenant safety is there, it's actually, mysteriously, and this is our deep theological thought for this morning, it's actually a picture of the union we have with God, and God has with the Trinity itself. That is what it's designed to be and I'm sorry that that is a little heavy for, our, for Memorial Day weekend, but this is why God asks us to guard sexual intimacy, to keep it from marriage. It has the potential for tremendous power when it's offered in the right context. And in the wrong context, it simply leaves us hungry again, hungrier than before for the type of love that we're actually made for. And for those of us who are married in the room, I want to acknowledge that much of the time, sex in our marriages is broken. I know this firsthand it's not this act born out of deep affection always and this mutual invitation and response like we're seeing in this passage it's simply me meeting my physical needs or one of the two people or we in marriage find this sort of coercion happening or force or manipulation in that in that sexual intimacy or we simply ignore it we ignore sex altogether it's too much too takes too much energy, too intentional. I don't have time. I'm too busy. So we ignore it altogether. The church is often taught that your sexuality is something you turn off until you get married and then you turn on and it's perfect. And that is obviously not true. It's not that simple. The reality is, all of us were created with these desires, with this part of ourselves. And marriage does not meet all of the physical longings and desires we have all the time. We, we have this deep longing for a relationship. And part of that longing is connected to our bodies. And so we're created for this. It's engaging all five senses. And not just with your spouse, but with your friends, with your kids, with your significant other. If you're not married, how do you connect physically in other ways to to show the depth of intimacy that you have. Um, I'll never forget visiting my best friend's family when I was in college, I was 18, we went away um, to her house for the weekend, her parents' house, and I was a little scandalized when I watched her kiss her dad on the mouth for the first time, right? I know many of you probably do this, I had never witnessed such a thing before, and I was shocked. And then she proceeded to do the same with her brothers and her sisters, and that was how, in their family, they expressed intimacy. And actually, the Bible talks about kissing more in the context of non-romantic relationships than in romantic relationships. This is something we all are wired for. My best friend now, I love seeing her family greet each other this way. I never got quite used to it, but she always catches me on the cheek when I see her as her expression of, of intimacy, of, of affection. And that's a good thing. I want us to be challenged this morning. How do we better engage our physical bodies in our close emotional spaces and relationships and show the people around us the beauty of how our bodies respond to physical touch and all of our senses? And when we are struggling with sexual desires that are not being fulfilled, whether because we're single or because we have some brokenness in our marriage, how do we talk about that more frankly with each other? How do we help our 18-year-olds in our midst talk about that, more frankly? Because the reality is, they are. How do we help our significant other talk about that? And then with a pastor or a counselor sometimes, how do we not treat it as something shameful or taboo? That's a challenge for us as a church. We can honor the physical senses God's given us in our bodies as beautiful in one another, as necessary to our experience of intimacy. But before I close, I promised that in all three of these, we'd talk about our relationship with God as well as humans and with fellow humans with each other. And I want to talk about that because God has actually given us a means for physical connection with him. Every month here at Bethany, do you know what we do on the first Sundays of the month? We take communion. And that means we dip bread in pieces, pieces of bread in juice, and we put them into our mouths. Think about how sensual that is. And what are we doing? We're proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. We're actually saying, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. That is a physical thing. When we profess belief in Christ for the first time, God invites us to symbolize our commitment to him. How? By being dunked in water by another person and then raised back up. Right? Right? Well, and I, I got to experience it with some sprinkling of water, but that's not the point. We all have experienced that if we are believing Christians in here. That's a physical symbol. It's actually very physical. And when we pray, we're invited to bend our knees and bow our heads and fold our hands as a physical reminder of honor and relationship we have with God. God knows who we are. God knows how we've been created. He's given us physical ways to connect even with him, even though he does not have a physical presence among us. And one of the ways we worship here every Sunday is through song, where our mouths are used to sing and our ears listen to God's praises being sung. It's a physical response. If you've ever raised your hands in worship, and I know it's uncomfortable if that's not something you've done often, There is something often that happens emotionally and spiritually for us as we physically open up our bodies. God's given us these gifts to connect with him in our physical way. And so I want to just close with that as a, well, partly as a response for us this morning. We're going to be singing, as we often do after the sermon, maybe always do. Show up completely for God in these next few moments. As we sing, we can say yes to God's invitation. We can invite God into our lives right in this moment as we sing. We can raise our hands, although I'm not saying you have to. You can simply by standing, we change our posture to to show God and show up for God and invite God even as God is inviting us into relationship. But I'm also going to ask us as we leave this morning and the musicians, I'll invite you guys to come up and get set. As we leave today, I would love us to consider who you might be inviting right now in your life. Who are you inviting to deeper relationship? Who are you maybe feeling like you should be inviting to deeper relationship or could be? Is it an acquaintance or a friend? Is it a spouse? Who can you be inviting in this coming week or this summer even and risking with into deeper relationship? That's my uh, encouragement for all of us this morning as we studied this Song of Solomon. There are prayer ministers over here who would love to pray with you, Joni and Kurt, and invite you during these last few songs. If you would like prayer for anything, take advantage um, of their amazing ministry. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this morning once again. God, we give you thanks that you've created us the way we are. Sometimes we struggle to understand, Lord, yet you know us better than we know ourselves. And so, God, would you help us to open up to you this morning as we continue in worshiping you and singing to you, God. Would you give us the ability to sing loud, to embrace the fact that we are um, physical beings, God, who need both physical, emotional, and spiritual love in our lives. We thank you that you provide all of that for us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.